Hello and welcome to the Journalism.co.uk podcast, a show where we bring you insights from media industry experts to help journalists do their jobs better. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. This week, we're going to find out how to make your newsroom more supportive for your LGBTQ colleagues. A recent paper by Birmingham City University showed that 86% of British LGBTQ journalists receive abuse and harassment for their sexuality, and 62% of those are not reporting it internally. So why do they suffer in silence? It's either because they don't want to seem like they're not cut out for the job, or aren't confident their employer can help. Author of the report and freelance journalist Finbar Toesland joins me to talk about how to put that right through policy reform and culture change. At the core of our conversation today is what specific support these journalists need and how to make them more comfortable in accessing it. The answer lies in becoming better allies of the LGBTQ community. All that's coming up, so don't go anywhere. Finbar, welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast. Thank you ever so much for jumping on the show. Really great to be here and get chatting about the report. Really looking forward to it. Awesome. Before we dig into that, maybe you can dig into your past for a, for a moment and tell us um, how you made the connection previously from studying archaeology and making the um, transition into journalism. Mm. I think digging into the my past is perfect <laughs> wording for this. Um, so yes, I, I don't really know the connection exactly, but my first real interest was archaeology. Um, more desk-based than actual, uh, the digging aspect of it, I have to admit. Um, I've been in a few digs and uh, as most people can imagine, they're quite um, intense. Um, I mean, similar to reporting on the ground sometimes doing journalism, it's long hours, rough conditions. Um, but no, it always interested me sort of finding out and uncovering something that hadn't been known for like thousands of years and no one had really discussed. Um, so I think there's some pretty clear connections between sort of journalism and archaeology but I think I made the shift because I think archaeology is not really um, the most sort of thriving industry in the UK at the moment but then as I say that I think is how's journalism doing at the moment Um, (laughs) but besides that yeah so yeah. (laughs) Well we'll certainly get on to how journalism is doing but the obvious question of course is best thing you've dug up or best thing you've discovered? Oh gosh Well, it was only, I was never a professional archaeologist working in the field. It was more um, uh, sort of training. I studied at UCL and they're the only university at the time that actually paid for you to go and do digging, which was really, really amazing for a couple of weeks. Um, It was in West Dean, which was really exciting. Um, There's a pretty graphic story that is very brief, but um, there was something called PrimTech, which was primitive archaeology, it was called, and it was back to basics, I think 10 days in some field camping, we had to get like flint napping. So we made these little like uh, rocks and made them quite sharp. And then we uh, had the skin of, a, of an animal and we actually took the fat off the inside with the, the flint. So that was um, the only interesting find I would say was that. And that was pretty traumatizing even 10 years ago on quite intense. Wow. Well, you've certainly moved on to different things uh, these days. So let's let's kind of consider how journalism is doing. Um, you've authored this, you know, very interesting um, piece of research with the the Sir Lenny Henry Centre for Media Diversity at Birmingham City University. 
very much looking at the environment for LGBTQ journalists working in the UK today. Finbar, um, tell me why this is a topic, perhaps something you're interested in or perhaps close to your heart. Why is this something you wanted to look at? Absolutely. Um, I think it started just as working as a journalist. You always see these different, um, when any article comes out, there's responses, good and bad. And I, I just thought, why are these responses coming in this way? And why are they coming from certain types of people on certain platforms, anonymous people? People know there's perhaps an issue with abuse um, for journalists to come from minority communities, um, LGBTQ backgrounds. So actually sort of putting a, a number to it, if, if you will, and just working out where exactly these attacks are coming from was really interesting to me. So it started like that, really. And when the project initially started, it was looking at what are the exact forms of abuse? And then it sort of kept going on to looking at the impact. that. And I was quite shocked and surprised to hear how, I suppose, insidious a lot of these um, trolling attacks and online abuse were. So it, it was quite disturbing to me to f- figure out the extent, really, some of these challenges that journalists faced. For sure. And I, do you consider yourself in the LGBTQ community Absolutely. as well? Um, so I'm a gay man, and that's, yeah. I think, really informed the work itself. I, I, I'm thankfully, and I, and I say, even when I say that, I feel like I shouldn't dismiss, you know, any abuse online and any um, abuse against LGBTQ journalists is clearly not good. But I was lucky not to have faced a great deal of abuse. Um, there were obviously some examples where you'd write a story and it would, some community would catch it. Um, and there would just be lots of, you know, comments, emails, um, just using slurs, attacking an article. So I'd face that, but not nothing really to an extent where I considered like some of the journalists had considered that I spoke to about leaving the industry. That had never really um, impacted me on that level, thankfully. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we do know at this point that the uh, online environment for journalists is pretty toxic. So no prizes for guessing that um, journalists from minority um, backgrounds or minority groups do face um, uh, a real tough time on the uh, on the on the online environment. Um, particularly of note, you know, I look at some of the findings here. Eighty six percent of your survey suggests that they receive abuse or harassment. Um, as LGBTQ journalists. So what is the the nature of that abuse that you found? What is the climate like for LGBTQ journalists working in today's digital environment? So it's a real mix of abuse and harassment. And I think when I first went into this research, actually defining what those terms meant was tricky because, you know, there is a, uh, mm-hmm. a view by some maybe old journalists who've been in the industry for a long time that, you know, abuse comes as part of the job and that's just, you know, move on. And actually, I think if in, perhaps before the internet, that was easy to do because there was less ways to communicate, you know, to journalists negatively. But now the the social media platforms that make everything so accessible and also a lot of, you know, media companies want their journalists to have a presence online. So they're encouraged to make public facing platforms. So the sort of personal and professional is really intermingled. I mean, sometimes it, it, it's too much for journalists who really don't want to be on the sort of face of blowback. Um, so a lot of it was social media abuse. Um, Twitter was the main platform that journalists were facing. Quite 
intense either pylons. So there'll be sort of one article someone would write and there'll just be dozens of, uh, you know, tweets, replies to an article just with slurs. Um, emails, people just received lots of emails, which were just quite threatening. And there was one case where there was a local journalist who just wrote on lots of general issues, nothing LGBTQ in specific, but then there was some pride event. And on the website of this newspaper, there was about, I think, nearly 50 comments just attacking LGBTQ people. Um, so that that's how it normally presents itself. There are also times in person where journalists have faced a, a range of abuse and attacks from both random people on the street who would just feel like they want to say something negative. But then also, you know, um, colleagues, sources, interviewees, it's it's a whole range of um, different ways people are targeted. Very revealing. And I think the alarming thing here is the amount of people who withdraw after receiving that abuse. 62% um, say they do not file a complaint after receiving that abuse. 62% are kind of suffering in silence. They accept it as part of the job, something they're expected to just absorb. That's, you know, a very, very troubling figure. Absolutely. And, and for me, that was, I think, some of the most shocking points were around what people, the impact on, on journalists, and that, that figure especially, a lot of the time, perception is very important in this. And if you're in a newsroom of five, 10 people, their immediate team around you, you know, it's very busy, it's very intense. You don't want to sort of sing yourself out and go, hi, I'm receiving this abuse, I don't feel comfortable with it, and it's impacting me. It can sometimes, you know, sign you out as someone that potentially isn't cut out for the role. That's how it can be perceived in some newsrooms. Um, so that's, I think, one of the reasons why, you know, so many people just don't even bother filing a complaint. And then secondly, it's, why would they? <laughs> I mean, what's what's the result going to be? And unfortunately, and I think this has come to another point in the study, I think nearly 80% of respondents to this study don't feel like media organisations in the UK are actually adequately protecting um, LGBTQ journalists from harassment and abuse. So they think, okay, I'm going to put myself out there, perhaps re-traumatise myself, go through what's happened to me, for what to happen, for media organisations to not respond to it, to not do anything. And even if there is a, a structure in place where, okay, the workforce are allowed to, you know, tell their employers that I'm being attacked online, this has happened in person, how is it being acted on? Once these complaints are being formulated and collected, what happens then? And there's not really a formalised structure in place at the moment in, I think, any of the newsrooms that I have heard from or dealt with, unfortunately, who have a response to that. So that would be, I think, a really important thing to address for media organisations to go, OK, there is a problem here, but the step should be there's a reason why almost two out of three LGBT journalists that face abuse aren't reporting it. It's because, one, they're concerned that we looked in different light because of it. And then secondly, there has to be a structure in place where these recordings actually have an impact and something's done about them. So they're the really important things that you know need to be addressed if more people are going to feel comfortable reporting their complaints. Yeah. And I think that will only happen when people in the in the top positions really understand the specific risks associated with being an LGBTQ journalist. And this is one of the key th barriers, I think, that 
we perhaps need to get over. So can you go into this? What are the specific risks faced by LGBTQ journalists? It goes from quite sort of small, practical news gathering challenges. So there was one journalist I spoke to who was a trans journalist, and their concern was if they went to interview someone in person, would the person know they're trans? If they thought they were trans, would they speak them differently than a colleague? Were they, you know, going to be treated as a serious journalist if they're reporting on a topic about the community by interviewees that they speak to? So that's the beginning of it. Secondly, a lot of it is perceived bias, where if a heterosexual person was to write a story about an LGBTQ issue, whether it's about pride, whether it's about a policy issue, there wouldn't be any accusations of, oh, you only wrote about it, number one, because you're a member of the community, or you only wrote about it in a quote-unquote positive way or a, a, a non-biased way because you're from this community. So a lot of the time people from the community can write a story and then the response is just lots of ad hominem attacks about, you know, you wrote it because you're a member of the community, it's not biased, you're not a real journalist, it's draining. Being a journalist at the best of times is long hours, not great pay, not great job security in a lot of cases. So you add on top of that with, you know, you wrote a story and you're, you're, you're happy with it, you know, and then you just get dozens of comments and tweets just attacking it without even reading it. So another one of these challenges that LGBTQ journalists face that non-LGBTQ journalists um, don't face is, I think there's one person I spoke to who was a sports journalist and they were going to some sort of press junket and they walked into the room and they had a colleague say, oh, that's the gay one from X publication. Um, and then the, I think it was the same event or a different event. The same journalist um, overheard a colleague say, you know, oh, they can't work in the, as a sports journalist because they're gay. They don't, they won't be able to report on it properly. So I think that can be another element where colleagues, especially in specific, you know, um, parts of the media industry may have, preconceived notions well clearly in this case they did how are they comfortable in saying this in a room of other journalists and colleagues um so questions like that really dig deep to what sort of environment is being fostered um is it safe for lgbt journalists to be the, their true selves at work so there's some of the main issues and i think a third one would be and this is a really challenging uh, conversation there's no sort of right or wrong answer to it unfortunately but if there's one journalist who's from the LGBTQ community and they're reporting on an issue in their newsroom, um, it might be an LGBTQ issue and an editor might go, oh, if you're part of the community, would love to you know, do more work on this area. Um, and while it can be obviously be useful for someone with lived experience reporting on an issue, a lot of the time, because of the polarisation around a lot of these topics, there's a lot more harassment and abuse about you know the journalists who write who write these articles so if an editor gives a lot of um articles to a journalist from the community there are a higher chance of getting more abusive articles so it's hard to work out the level of not sort of boxing someone in so they're only doing lgbtq stories if they don't want to if they want to be sort of a general reporter but then also making sure that if someone with a lived experience can actually add add to the conversation on these issues as well what I take from this is that there are unconscious and conscious prejudices 
whether it's ignorant views on sexuality determining a journalist's competence at their job, or a tendency to give the LGBTQ journalists the LGBTQ stories. Abuse and harassment aimed at sexuality is draining, not least because it is perceived as an attack on their identity, but it does also mean that journalists sometimes want to break from these stories, as they're likely to trigger a reaction. Finbar provides seven recommendations in his report for newsrooms to reform policies and commit to culture change. Two of those revolve around training and educating both journalists and media executives on the specific threats faced by LGBTQ people. Another recommendation is to provide therapy and counselling to LGBTQ journalists as well as freelancers, so often the forgotten cohort of the newsroom, who both need aftercare support for the valuable stories they provide. All of these recommendations are an expense, but Finbar says you can't put a price on the welfare of your writers. Not doing so will result in talent leaving the industry. A lot of the time when there's abuse online, it can feel like, you know, you're not sure who to talk to, where in a newsroom, there may be people you can speak to, but you don't want to sort of, you know, like I said before, create perception of yourself that you can't really deal with some of these comments. So there's a concern about that. So having a professional who is external to the organisation, who is an expert in this and discussing these issues, it can be really, really useful. Really useful. Unfortunately, a lot of the media organisations don't offer therapy or counselling services for in-house their own staff, but then they also don't, of course, offer it to freelancers too, unfortunately. So I think having access to that would be so beneficial because... It's not all the time that abuse happens to LGBTQ journalists, but when it does, it can be quite acute. And being able to reach out to a professional, which they're not paying for, because otherwise, you know, it's prohibitively expensive. It's just too much money. Um, And that stops people from accessing it. And I think a lot of this, it's the mental strain um, that comes into play as well, where it's beneficial to media media organisations too, to try and support journalists that are going through this where obviously there's a a price to a lot of these recommendations, both in time and money and resources at all levels of an organisation. But I think there was two or three people I spoke to um, or responded to the survey who had said they'd left their role because of abuse and harassment. It just wasn't worth it. It was too much stress, too much energy. One of them was working on um, LGBTQ issues and it was just too much for them. So they left and joined, you know, and now they do reporting that's about I think financial issues that's not as controversial so they're you know, real concerns and I think this would be really beneficial in actually supporting them when they need support and hopefully increasing the numbers who want to stay as journalists in the industry reporting on these issues because you know these are important issues that have to be um, covered and if journalists don't feel safe or comfortable reporting on them then that's pretty concerning for the whole industry really. That is such an enormous loss for the industry, not just the the journalists themselves, but the stories that they're going to be missing out alongside it and those which cater for audiences who are perhaps underserved as well. There's a real knock-on effect to losing those journalists because mm-hmm. they don't want to put up with these conditions any longer and they shouldn't have to. And you can't blame them for leaving if if this is their reality that they face all the time. So there is a real imperative here. Um to that that something needs to change and i like a lot of the the policies that you kind of are suggesting here you know about therapy and counseling you you touch on here also you know recording and tracking all incidents of abuse so nothing falls under the radar there's a pattern there that that can be followed 
You talk about policies that encourage easy and anonymous reports as well. And you talk about reassessing existing policies to make sure they encompass LGBTQ journalists and the concerns that they have. That's about right, isn't it? Fair summary? Yeah, absolutely. There's also a very specific policy here, which I really want to kind of um, come to finally here, which is about expanding diversity initiatives, not just to bring people through the door, but to make them feel welcome once they are there. And and that those initiatives being focused on fostering a supportive environment for, for those journalists. Can you tell us more about that? Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's so important. Well, I think a lot of the time, and obviously it's very important to recruit journalists from all communities that are underserved and, um, you know, there's a lack of those people in newsrooms. That's very important. But I, from my own experience and from speaking to um, journalists for the report, once that initial sort of push to get um, people in the door is, is done, it's not as um, comprehensive once they've joined an organisation. So that, for me, is an area that really needs to be expanded upon. And and what's the resulting feeling of that? If you if you've been brought through the door in a diversity initiative, and then suddenly, like the, I don't know how to put it, like the curtain is dropped, and then it's n- maybe not as supportive as it appears. Yeah. What's the what's the feeling you're left with? You just would feel like it's um, not an organisation where you can see a long term future in. Um, I mean, especially if it's a younger journalist just starting out, and. They think, oh, great, you know, this, this organization really cares. They got me here on, on this program. They, they believe I'm a, I'm a good journalist and my skills are valuable. And then once they get through the door and they just see that, oh, that's where the sort of support ends in this area. And I think in most industries and most careers, it's it's completely acknowledged that when you can come as your full self to a you know your job, it improves your, your work. It improves every aspect of your life. So I think media organizations really do need to bring out initiatives that focus more on engaging current staff and fostering an environment where it's comfortable to discuss issues about this. There is a hesitation sometimes to not want to say the wrong thing or put your foot in your mouth and that's a concern. But I think, you know, in newsrooms where there's an environment where people can share their thoughts and ideas safely and freely, um, these conversations need to be had about, okay, what are the challenges that people are facing? And there's no right or wrong answer to these conversations. It's more of a mm. discussion about, okay, how can we as a team potentially um, engage more with other th- points of view, other viewpoints, um, and work it from that aspect? And I, I wonder what the reality of that looks like. Would that be really regular check-ins and one-on-ones with that journalist once they're in the building? Would it be like aftercare sessions after they've come off the back of a, you know, pen- potentially big hit story and something which could have had a lot of um, emotional toll attached to it you know what would be the reality of this this kind of continual fostering of of support for these journalists exactly what you said but also a lot of these are um you don't sort of push push a conversation to happen when it's not ready to happen right um and i think it, it comes down to ensuring that everyone's feels comfortable and safe in their roles in discussing everything that's on the table that's the first stage of this where, you know, if there's a conversation about, okay, there's this article that focuses on LGBTQ issues and it could be a polarizing topic that, you know, different people in the newsroom have different ideas about how to cover it, there needs to be a ground level of understanding between colleagues that we can discuss this and we can be open without facing any sort of, um, not backlash, but it being taken the wrong way that it was said in, you know? Mm. Um, and there's no real sort of one 
initiative, unfortunately, or program that would address this. It's more a consistent um, environment that's being formed in newsrooms where people feel comfortable discussing these issues. Yeah. Um, that That's the main thing, really. Um, in terms of practical initiatives that can be done, um, I think the most important is really for executives to create um, reporting mechanisms for journalists where they can actually say, this is the abuse that's happened, here's how it's impacting me, here's what I think needs to be done about it. That's important. And not just that first step of actually, you know, making a reporting platform, but actually showing, you know, your staff and journalists that we're actually going to do something about this. There's an interesting point here that specific support structures do need to be in place, like regular one-to-ones or aftercare check-ins after big stories. But you cannot force conversations either. A lot of this comes down to creating an environment where people feel comfortable in accessing support. In reality, that means ensuring job security and people standing in the newsroom. There's still a lot of work left to do here. Unfortunately, 58% of the respondents said they don't think their employer is doing enough to support LGBTQ journalists. It leaves me thinking, whose responsibility is it to make the change? Or who has the power to make the change? If you are an LGBTQ journalist receiving abuse and harassment, what can you do? Sadly, Finbar says that your options are limited, and that is likely why so many have given up and moved on. You can obviously speak to your um, managers and executives, but a lot of the time, a lot of these structures that need to be in place to address these challenges are not overnight, you know, things that are put in place. And they do require a, like a, a, a all executives to be on the same page with this. So I think that's one of the concerning points where people have just left their roles and that's what's happening today people just going I don't want to be in this role it's I don't feel comfortable or safe here and it's very hard for one journalist to actually go I'm going to change the entire newsroom and environment and, and change how everything's done it's much easier to find a newsroom that does value you and does make sure that you feel safe and comfortable so the responsibility is more with those media execs then. So for anyone listening and they are in a position to affect policies and culture change here, um, get on and do it. What's the message? Absolutely. I think that's the point is just recognising is the first step. And I do hope this report has gone some way into showing the impact um, that unchecked abuse against LGBTQ journalists actually has. Whereas I think... You know, there's a lot of different moving parts in media organisations and a lot of different journalists face a lot of different challenges. So, you know, it can be difficult, I'm sure, for executives to keep on top of everything that's going on. But there's so many levels of how this abuse impacts the bottom line news gathering. Is there anything you think they can do to open the conversation with their their staff members, their um, their journalists who are perhaps reticent to talk about this? Is there anything you can do as a... You know, is there anything you think they can do as a first step to open that conversation out and maybe gauge what are the problems and what are the policies they need? The first step really has to be, and this is probably one of the trickiest parts of it, is making sure that everyone in a newsroom does feel comfortable in engaging in those conversations and sharing that, you know, there will be missteps. There will be, you know, people will say things that either they come across poorly, um, don't communicate exactly how they feel. And, you know, unless they're genuine feelings are communicated on these topics, no progress we've made. And I'm sure a lot of journalists have been in situations where there's a training or something, or there's a 
a conversation that's being had in the newsroom about a certain topic. And, you know, they can either tell themselves that they want to share something, but they feel like, how would it be received? Would it not come across right? And on the other side of that, there's journalists who can see others want to share their, you know, true feelings, but they don't feel comfortable in doing so. So actually sharing that from the top down that, you know, there will be missteps during these conversations. Um, and there is no right or wrong answer to it. It's a conversation. That's like, the most important thing. Yeah, the intention counts, doesn't it? And this is not an overnight fix. This is a marathon. And that starts with one step. And as you say, there'll be missteps along the way. There'll be, you know, we will stumble, but we will eventually get there if that intention and that forward direction is there. Um, and then kind of finally, what about people like myself, people who are heterosexual, you know, but they consider themselves allies of the LGBTQ community? What's our role in this? The most important thing which I found from the research is just making sure that if there's a colleague that is a member of the community and they're facing abuse and harassment, making sure that they know that the newsroom itself will be comfortable if they go, look, this has happened to me. It is impacting my work. You know, there's a Twitter harassment campaign against me um, or every article I write is being just attacked. And I just don't feel like it's 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 working and I, I want to make a complaint or I want to you know share that this isn't okay. The most important thing that a fellow um, journalist colleague can do is actually share with them, absolutely, you should do this. It is a comfortable thing to do. You shouldn't feel like it's a negative thing to show that, yes, this abuse is getting to you. Um, and just really being there and letting them know that they have support. And that's the biggest thing where a lot of the time, because these some newsrooms only perhaps have one LGBT member of a certain team, um, they might internalise a lot of these feelings and not share them. And actually having someone else in the team to go, look, I'm with you on this, I understand the challenges, is huge. Um, the support there is the biggest thing. Because without that, it, it can be very hard to share these you know, experience of, of abuse and harassment, because there's so many barriers to it. I mean, if you've got, you know, a team that you don't feel like you can share this information with, you feel like even if you do manage to share it, there'll be no response by the organisation. Having someone in your corner is super, super helpful. That's a great message to leave our audience with, Finbar. Thank you ever so much for coming on the show and speaking with me. Really do appreciate it. Thanks so much. Pleasure to chat with you. Right, there's a lot to unpack here. Like we explored in our last conversation about Me Too issues in the media, abuse and harassment of LGBTQ journalists is not just a newsroom issue, it's a societal problem. But that doesn't mean newsrooms should take the issue lying down. In fact, they should be paving the way for solutions as organisations which seek to hold power to account. That starts with putting in place support systems that recognise struggles specific to LGBTQ people. But all of this is for nothing if they do not remove the shame or stigma attached to accessing those lines of support. Let us know how your newsroom is thinking about these challenges. Find me on Twitter at jpgjournalism or email me on jacob at journalism.co.uk. As always, you can check out all of our episodes on all your podcast platforms, SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Just search and subscribe to the Journalism.co.uk podcast. But that's all we have time for this week. I've been your host, Jacob Granger. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.